Welcome to Building Literacy, Public Library Construction, a podcast for librarians, trustees, and local officials who are exploring or undertaking a renovation, expansion, or new construction project for their library. My name is Andrea Bunker. And my name is Lauren Stara. And we are the library building specialists who administer the Massachusetts Public Library Construction Program a multi-million dollar grant program run by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners, the state agency for libraries. While this podcast is Massachusetts focused, stakeholders and library building projects everywhere may find helpful information within these episodes. From fundraising and advocacy campaigns to sustainability and resilience to the planning, design and construction process, there is something for everyone. If there is a public library building project topic we have not covered, but that is of interest to you, please email me at andrea.bunker at state.ma.us. Or me at lauren.stara at state.ma.us. On this episode of Building Literacy, we venture into the realm of building performance and commissioning. This is our first in a series on sustainability for public library buildings. We are joined by two experts in the fields of sustainable design and building science, Wesley Stanhope, the founder and CEO of Building Evolution Corporation, and Ken Newhauser, president of Building Evolution Corporation. Welcome to our show. So as part of Building Evolution Corporation, um, you play a role as commissioning agents and also deal with building science and building performance. But can you tell us a little bit more about your company's role in the construction process and also the credentials that you both bring to your positions? Ken, sure. or Wesley? Ken, do you want to start that? Sure. Um, so I, I would say our, our role is it starts long before the construction process. I just wanted to add that um, because we serve as a, as a technical advocate for the owner to make sure the owner's goals are represented in the design and, and carried out in construction. So. Really, it, it has to start even before design to make sure that the goals of the owner are articulated and understood. For a lot of our clients have, they tend to be institutional clients or research institutions, affordable housing developers. And these are all organizations for whom the function of the building is absolutely mission critical, but the people running the organization, they have expertise in other areas than running buildings and understanding how buildings operate. While they might know what they need their buildings to do, they usually don't know exactly how to get the building there. And that's that's where we come in to help translate what the owners are trying to do. And, and this is people in our industry, I should say. Um, so folks in our industry and people that do work like us, they look at translating the goals of, of owners and operators and the trustees running these buildings into what does that mean in terms of the systems and the design and the construction and operation. So Wes, I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, so typically we would start in the you know pre-construction as Ken was speaking about, and that's where we would try to assist the owners um, with the question such as, you know, what are the goals that they want with the project? And as you know, what are the issues that they have with the buildings now? What do they want to address? And part of that is what's called an owner's um, project requirements, OPR. And it's setting down those, that list of details of what, what's a roadmap for that building and to address the goals. And that could help guide the design team into 
you know, what are they trying to address with the project? Is it the building enclosure, the mechanical systems, the electrical, you know, lighting upgrade for the building? And that will, tr that will help, you know, define the design requirements for the actual project. So that is pre-construction, pre-design. And then we try to, we, you know, we assist the actual design team with uh, reviewing the actual design. So there's a lot of parts to the actual building. It's not just uh, the building is singular, but it has many components. It has the enclosure systems, which is like the walls, the roofs, the windows. It's what's trying to keep the outside out and the inside in. And we're conditioning one of that, we're conditioning the inside. And we're doing that with mechanical systems. So we are looking at what is the design mechanical systems that need to work with the enclosure systems. And they're usually different design teams, different design practices, but we are forming that bridge between the owner and design practices to try to ensure there's a holistic design to the actual upgrade. And then it's doing the actual quality control and quality assurance of the actual construction process itself. And part of that, Ken, do you want to discuss about the actual mock-ups for the construction process for the enclosures? Sure. Um, that's one way of engaging in the construction process where, where things may be unfamiliar to the folks putting the building together. Uh, it's going to be real useful to, to get out there on site with folks and help, help guide the, you know, a mock-up would be installing a, a particular component, let's say a window to understand how the window is, is going to work in this system. And then once that's understood, they can go out and do so on other windows do. But it's the, the purpose of really engaging in there when something is unfamiliar, it's about helping everybody succeed because you you certainly want the, you want the builder to succeed and you want the owner to succeed and get what they're looking for. And you want the design to be successfully implemented. But if we, if people are, are siloed and, and have their head down doing their own task and sticking to what they believe is, is their lane, I think they miss the opportunities to collaborate and, and get success for the whole team. And what are your respective backgrounds in terms of this type of work? And um, I know, Wes, you have some library experience as well mm -hmm. as a trustee. And if you'd like to expound upon that a little yeah. bit. That's a good question. How, how did we get here? <laughs> yeah, so my background is in construction engineering and management originally, and I was over in Ireland and uh, worked with design and rehabilitation of a lot of buildings and projects for about a decade. Um, and while over there, got into liking a lot of um, older buildings and how to make buildings uh, more effective and how to actually make them work better into the future, more sustainable, but uh, more energy efficient, more durable and more effective. Uh, when I came back to America, cause I was you know, originally from here, but moved over there for 17 years. So when I, moved re when I moved back to my original hometown, which is Southbridge, Massachusetts, I became a trustee of Jacob Edwards Library and as a trustee there, working with Margaret, who's the director, um, not only helping with being a trustee, but also helped with the building itself and developing a plan for reviewing, analyzing the existing building systems and helping to come up with um, ways to shift the building into the future. 
by looking at what building systems need to be upgraded because they're coming towards end of life or are at end of life, and how would you come up with a capital investment plan to change those systems to better adapt the building into the future and be able to serve the community. And Wes, I think it's also fair to say you, you've got a veritable alphabet soup after your name. You've done a lot of work to get a bunch of credentials in terms of commissioning, existing building commissioning. Correct. So I also have a master's degree in sustainable design at Boston Architectural College. And I'm certified energy manager and existing building commissioning professional and certified commissioning professional. I think I'm missing out on oh, certified passive house consultants. Yeah. So there's other, other um, educational steps I had along the way. And Ken? Yeah, I guess, I don't know if you need the whole background. It started many years ago, I could tell you that. Um, I, I left a purpose, perfectly reasonable career in economics after reading Jane Jacobs, I went back to school for architecture, was interested in architecture and urban planning with, with the idea of how translating something I always wanted to do, which was, I was always interested in how buildings work and how buildings get built and design of buildings, realizing that that's actually something that has social value and it could serve people to do right in the building environment, in the built environment. Uh, so I, I have, um, I stuck around for a, a couple of master's degrees and have been working not so much as as a uh, as an architect per se but i've been working in the energy efficiency and building performance field i guess the past uh, little more than 20 years now and i've also taken some roles in my town in of maynard massachusetts i've been on the conservation commission for a number of years and the historic commission as well and the school building committee and i think all of these things are about how the our built environment interacts with our, our community and our natural environment around us. The, um, the work that we've been involved with, I think we both were deeply involved with energy efficiency, energy audits, utility efficiency programs, which was great in, in getting us out there, lots of hands-on looking at buildings, face-to-face -face involved with project teams and owners and design teams, and understanding that process very well. I think what was for both of us discouraging is that the energy efficiency would often become the driver. Now it is very important, but it shouldn't be pursued at the expense of many other things about building performance, which are important and the reasons that we build buildings, like the comfort, the durability, and the operability of buildings. So we uh, we did, after we, we overlapped in one of our previous companies, we worked together and we realized that we both had this, this notion of building performance as something much broader than energy. And the idea that energy performance, energy efficiency is what you get when you do everything else right. We took these ideas, uh, Wes got this company started and I joined him and it's been, it's been a thrill being able to get out there and actually deal with buildings the way they, we think they should be handled. So I think we're, really what's important is not so much dealing with buildings, but it's it's giving people that are responsible for buildings, you know, giving them good guidance and good advice to help them get the buildings to where they need to be to serve the people that use them. I think oftentimes in the public arena, public building arena, it's not something that they're used to pursuing. So I'm kind of curious about your different assessments that you do. And I know that you had 
you know, three different levels or four different levels of service that you outlined um, in some of your answers, do you ever come into a project post-assessment phase or into the design phase where there have been no assessments done or no goal setting whatsoever? Um, and how do you handle that? Yes, we. there are projects where we come in even towards the end of the design phase and buildings would have some some fairly serious problems and sometimes you know they would have problems or issues with them when it comes to durability or could be high humidity could be issues going on with the actual mechanical systems and the design is in full swing and it's not being addressed so there are there are projects like that we have some going on right now that we are working on that are similar to that and it is sometimes difficult because you have a whole team um, that are already been working on a project and have gotten you know a good good way down the actual you know for a few months working on the project and now you're trying to tackle problems that either they did not see or maybe they did see but did not feel that was within the scope of the project and it's a delicate because you're, you're dealing with you know the design team their people and you you can't just you know wrestle them into a change. You gotta let them see why the change is important, both to the building, you know, to the durability, to indoor air quality. You know, um, if if they don't take on the board the actual recommendations, how it's going to affect indoor air quality of the building and how that's going to affect the occupants, or whatever the issue is with the building and let them see why it's important to make changes, even if they are 80 or 90% design phase. And hopefully, you know, a lot of times they will take on board the recommendations. But, you know, it is a, it is a thing that you, you got to take on delicately, but stern enough that you have to show them what is the impact of not doing the recommendation and let them see the aha moment of why it's important so that they could take it on board and adapt to the building chain, you know, adapted building design to make that improvement. Uh, Ken, do you want to expand on yeah. that? Well, it's, it's always tough to be brought in late <laughs> on a project. It's, it puts nobody in a good position. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, at that point, the, the budgets have usually been set and people have spent all their design fees. They don't want to go back and, and redo things. And the owner brings us in as a, uh, as a hired second guesser. And nobody likes a second guesser, but it, it is, I think it's important to keep in mind that as costly as it may seem to take a pause during design and, and redesign things and do what I would call a pre-construction retrofit, if that better aligns with what the building and the, the owner and the organization need, ultimately it's better to spend those resources then rather than have use all of the construction resources, which are usually orders of magnitude beyond the design resources. Organizations are going to spend a lot more on their contractor than on their architect. So we need to keep that in mind and help organizations avoid building in a problem because what they build in is going to be something they contend with for decades, if not longer. Who knows when they would have the resources to, to address a, an issue if it was built in. So it's it's worth getting things right at the design phase. Um, and it is awkward. Uh, we do have to approach it delicately. It's, it's not a great position to be in, but we try to keep our 
keep our eyes on what the owner is really looking for. And if we can steer it in a positive direction, then the discomfort we go through in that, those awkward moments is worth it. So for the goal setting and assessment phase, you're interacting with the owner prior to them having an architect or is there usually a design firm oh. on board at that point? Ideally, it's, it's prior to but often there, there is already a, a design firm engaged and that, that process is usually rolling. I, I say it's better to, to do an assessment before engaging a design firm because understanding what the building needs, understanding what the owner needs, the owner can develop a really good, it might be an RFP or however they're soliciting the services. Uh, yeah, we can talk later about the owner's project requirements and by carefully crafting the RFP according to, that's the request for proposals, according to what the owner needs, that can self-select um, among the pool of potential applicants, right? By saying what they really want, they would get people who are interested in delivering that, or more likely to get folks who are capable and interested in participating in that endeavor. If there's already somebody on board, they may have a notion of of how to get the project through and what the project needs. And maybe they hit it spot on and that's great. And I don't want to uh, malign the industry. There certainly are other folks who can do that. And can you talk a little bit about the different types of assessments that you do in that pre-design phase? So different types of assessments. Um, sometimes we're in there specifically trying to diagnose a problem, performance problem, whether it's a, a comfort issue runaway energy use, um, air quality, moisture. We get in there to try to diagnose and look at the interaction between the different systems and what is causing this issue. And in other cases, it's typically, especially before designing a project and before taking on a major renovation, it's, it's a good idea to get in there and see if there are any issues lurking. So for example, if, if a, a library is looking at doing a major heating cooling system replacement or roof replacement or window replacement, it's a good chance that they've identified what the most urgent needs are. But what if there's something more urgent that's not on their list? And if they go ahead and spend the resources and then discover a year or two down the road that there was a real big problem, um, then the resources are gone. So it would be useful to go in there with a real open mind and just look at all the, the different systems of the building, crawl through it, attic, crawl space, basements, inside, outside, and understand where the building is relative to where it wants to be. If somebody takes on an assessment like that, then they could chart out a path for how to get to where the owner wants the building to be. And that may not be in the, in the present project. It's probably something that will happen over time. But the important thing is to make sure that the goals of where the building needs to be in the future, that direction is set so that when there is a, even a simple project is undertaken in the short term, the owner can make sure that those, all those steps are at least going in the direction, taking the building where it wants to go, where it wants to be, and to avoid doing things today that are going to create obstacles tomorrow. So those assessments are key in terms of something you had mentioned in one of our previous discussions, which is planning forward or a building in general. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of our libraries are experiencing you know, HVAC systems that are now reaching 20 years. 
uh, roofs that are having to be replaced. So these small upgrades, well, they're really not small, they're large, but they're not a full renovation, um, renovation expansion or new building project, but they are trying to meet some sort of energy efficiency as their municipalities make these compacts for either net zero or carbon neutral or lead for their public facilities by a certain time. Um, so can you talk a little bit about planning forward and upgrades uh, in terms of what they should be thinking about or do this? And, and I would just interject that that would be both for an existing building and a potential new building. So are you looking at standards or how to plan? So I think that's interesting because mm. the standards, I think for librarians, we see these energy efficiency standards that are out there and we think you build to that. But one point that you had made that really resonated with me is that you should look at what the goals for your building are mm -hmm. separately from those standards. And if a standard happens to fit those goals, then that's optimal, but not designing to a standard without thinking about your building as a whole. Andrea, I think that's exactly it. Too often we see, because people are, are looking for some direction as to what, what represents a good building or good performance. So there are standards out there and checklists that people can go through. But we've seen too many times that that becomes really the driver of what the project is all about. And people end up, you know, we call it points chasing, you know, chasing points on, for example, a lead checklist, which not that it's a bad idea to pursue lead, but to make changes because they're in a checklist is not, that's not a good rationale for, for making those measures. So what you said is, is I think true. The people responsible for the building, the operators and the trustees really need to understand and, and set goals. What does the building want to be? What, what are the performance objectives for the project? And get those really set and established. And then if there happens to be a program that fits, fantastic, go for it. But, but we would not advocate selecting some standard and then letting that drive the design. Um, you know, we don't think that serves the client's interests or ultimately that of the building. There are certainly things out there that we, that we think are great. We use Passive House on new construction. I don't think, I wouldn't rule it out on existing buildings either. There are programs out there and structures that help people. These really should be brought in as a matter of some quality control as just keeping people honest rather than being in the driver's seat. They're very good for that purpose. You mentioned about the timing, the life cycle timing of building components where you have, you know, libraries where they're, which is any building, but libraries where, you know, the boiler system might be 20 years old and it's got expected life expect, you know, expectancy of 25 years. And maybe the roofing system is coming up on 30 years old. Different components have different life expectancies. They're not going to last 100 years for a 100-year building. They have different cycles for when they need to be replaced. You could chart out when everything was originally installed, when it was replaced, and come up with a life cycle of the components. And that's typically a facility condition assessment. But we put it a spin on it and have it a performance-based facility condition assessment. And with that, you, know, you look at is all those components, when are they due for replacement, and chart out a roadmap 
for these replacements and maybe an estimated budget for how much will it cost to replace that boiler and how much would it cost to replace the air handler and the roof and the windows and those major components that make up the building enclosure and the mechanical systems and other systems as well. And it gives a, a roadmap of a budget into the future for system replacements. But then you add in the performance aspect. If you know that a boiler is gonna cost, say, $40,000, $50,000 to replace, but the enclosure has improvements coming up around the same year as well, well, now you can start to see where things collide on budgets and impact your operational costs. But if you are able to leverage the enclosure replacement, like say window replacement, roof replacement, and improve the enclosure, and in, you know, say add exterior insulation and wrap the building with exterior insulation, you could bring down the heating requirements. And then instead of replacing that boiler in kind, you're looking at it holistically and now you could replace it with maybe a, a variable refrigerant flow system or a smaller boiler, something that's more effective. In increment steps, you could bring the building into a higher performance and better durability and better quality by looking at it over the long term during the normal life cycle upgrades that's required just to maintain the building. So getting out of that replacement in kind cycle. So it, that's really a process of you know, using the capital planning process and predicting these major replacements and capital maintenance, using that to evolve a building to a different level of performance by leveraging these components when they need to re be replaced rather than replace in kind. Ask, well, do we want to go back to that system? Would we rather change to something different? Usually, when a roof is being replaced, well, it's pretty obvious that is the least cost opportunity to upgrade that whole roof assembly to something that can lower the heating and cooling loads. And similarly, when, a, when windows are being replaced, well, that's, that's really the least cost time to make the increment and, and change how those windows work. Oftentimes, so we see the capital improvement plans on a five-year cycle. Do you recommend it being longer than that, a long-term? Yes. Planning process? Yes, because a lot of the actual building components are going to last longer than five years. And, you know, if you have mechanical, like a boiler that was installed maybe seven or eight, ten years ago, it will still have 15 years left on its lifespan. You're going to want to have more of a 20 to 30 year outlook. The only caveat with that is nobody has that crystal ball to see what's going to happen in 20 or 30 years time or even next week at five years. Yeah. So <laughs> we have a really good understanding of what the condition of the building is today. If we did an assessment of it and we got a good idea maybe of how it's going to be in a year's time, but after five years, even two years, three years, four years, okay. It's kind of getting to being too far out to if the maintenance of the building was to change slightly, it's that five-year outlook starts to change drastically. But we still want to plan for you know financial upgrades in 10 years' time and 15 years' time. So at least you know what how changes today or in five years you know impact that budget for the future. And, and we're talking about libraries here, right? And Libraries, those are institutions that are really a part of our community and part of our, what defines our society. And so I hope we're thinking of, of keeping those community and society going for more than five years. 
So we want to be looking far into the future. And by the same token, um, we know that these are libraries. Very seldom does a library have gobs of resources to be able to go through radical change, which is why it needs to carefully think about where does it want to get to in the very long term? How does it need to evolve? And understanding, as Wes said, that you know we really we none of us can predict the future, but we can certainly set long-term goals and understand if we set a goal, each step we take should be in that direction. That's what the the planning forward is about, and that's why we we need to set a, a long goal so that we can understand and let that inform the steps we take in the near term. Can you give us a brief overview of each of those different standards so that our listeners can hear a little bit about Why? them? Uh, so you, you're interested in new construction, the ones that would be applicable to a new construction project? I think for both. It could be yeah. for a renovation. So we have a lot of historic structures that are renovated and expanded, um, but we mm -hmm. also do have new construction as part of our program as well. Well, you know, I would start with just saying, setting, setting goals and measuring things, and it doesn't have to be a formal program, you know, um, understanding, for example, a simple metric would be the energy use uh, relative to the floor area of the building, which is often called the energy use intensity. Even just looking at that would be a great start that would give people a handle on things. Looking at the budget over time for the, um, you know, the the tickets for maintenance and the service requests. Are there, how's the building doing as far as being able to, to not need a whole lot of work and upkeep? Uh, that would be a good measure of success. These are, these are examples of things that I think, uh, you know, at, at the library administration and, and the people working there as well as trustees could come up with simple metrics and measures that are important. Beyond that, there are formal programs uh, living building challenge, I think, is the, you know, that would be certainly the highest standard to achieve, and there, it's it's very ambitious, and it would essentially means that a building is independent on its site relative to energy, water, that it is beautiful by by somebody's metric, and that it avoids toxicity in its materials, it achieves optimum support for human health, and occupation and use, so that. The living building challenge, I would say that is certainly the, the highest standard. I don't know if that's within everybody's reach. Both Wes and I have been active with projects that are using Passive House. And, and we find this, um, again, this isn't the driver Passive House of our work with projects, but we find that it really fits in well with an overall quality assurance and building performance uh, motivation. Because it happens to be a really great risk management pro protocol. Risk management in terms of managing risks of comfort issues, moisture issues, durability, systems not operating, not working. By having a really robust standard that is really out there and people are drawn to it because of a, you know, energy and a, and a climate impact motivation. And it certainly is, is fantastic for that. But the ancillary benefits and benefits entailed are, are those of great risk management. So those are two programs. I think Energy Star is, is one that's closer to entry level. Um, there is, of course, LEED as well. I, myself, I have an aversion to it because I'm 
I'm really not good with paperwork and bureaucracy. So I, I tend to, even though I was involved with Lead for Homes pilots and getting those going and some, some early multifamily projects in the state to get to get those projects through Lead, I haven't been doing very much of that in the past decade or more. So many of our libraries are more familiar with Lead, but we've heard from the design firms that code and stretch code have caught up to where Lead was about five years ago. Um, could you give us a definition of code and stretch code and talk about whether or not you think they're doing enough for energy efficiency? I, I'd like to say, uh, probably sidestep your question a little bit there, Andrea, and talk about you know what the building code is. And at the end of the day, the building code is what is enforced in any local jurisdiction. So it, it really comes down to interpretation and enforcement and empowerment of individuals. I just think it's important to establish off the bat, there's that distinction, sometimes disparity, between what is the written building code and what is the building code in effect in any community. So with that said, you know, the, the building code has certainly progressed over the years, but we, we do need to remember that the code is something, well, it's limited in that it, it can only look at specific criteria and criteria that are easily inspected and verified. Performance, and especially a holistic performance, it doesn't really work that way and can't be achieved with a checkbox uh, or a checklist, rather. Code is great in that it can protect people from themselves or <laughs> protect people from particularly bad practices, but it doesn't do anything to assure integration of everything together or a holistic approach. I think the stretch code gives us a little bit more, you know, and whether there's some, because of the way stretch code works and it's a, a leapfrog thing where it leapfrogs over the base code and then we have the stretch energy code that gets ahead of it and then the base code catches up. So it's it's sometimes, depending on, on what year people are listening to this, the difference is strong or less strong. But one of the things that's in the stretch code currently is that it does have some performance measurement requirements. So on the residential side, there is PERS rating required, which is a third party who's in there, which is, I'm sure, handy for the building inspector to have somebody else who can be the bad guy uh, running around and, and pointing at, at issues. And then that, that HERS rating also involves a blower door test or an air leakage test of the building. And that is something that gives you a good idea of whether things are well integrated because there may be the code compliant level of insulation. There may be the, all the, the right nails that are holding up the sheathing and the structure is, is meeting the standard. But how well are these things put together is really the question. And a simple air leakage test is a good, it's a good proxy for how well the whole building is integrated. And Wes, you probably have some thoughts on that as well. I've been babbling on for a while. Well, yeah, like the, the code is a starting point. You know, it's the it's not the finish line for a building performance. So it's you know it's it's the least that you need to do in order to to satisfy the the uh, building officials. So it's not it's not something that we should necessarily be um, thrilled about meeting. You know, we, yes, we do have to meet code, but it doesn't mean that we have a high performance building. And it is looking at each individual component and specifying what it needs to be minimum in order to be approved. It's not necessarily looking at how does it all interact with each other 
to work and function as a building. You know, it's looking at what's the minimum insulation level you need within a wall, but not how that whole entire wall assembly works to effectively uh, maintain the indoor air environment. And how does that work with the heating and cooling system within the building? It doesn't go that far. So being able to take it to the next level and look at how does a building actually perform, the, how to improve the actual, not just energy efficiency level, but the indoor air quality and the, you know, the moisture management inside of building is very important. And it's something that just looking at individual components, it, we're not gonna really achieve that. So it's a starting point, it's not the finishing line. And it, you know, I would add to that, uh, Code is, that's the minimum legal standard we can build to today. Um, and we don't build institutions for today. We build institutions for the decades to come. So, you know, it's, it's nice that code is there as a guardrail and it, it does have some good safety standards in it. Things, you know, obviously it addresses a lot more than energy efficiency. But if we're building a building for decades to come, we don't want to use the standard of the minimum legal uh, practice today. So code is really more reactionary than visionary. It's been like that for a few thousand years. It started in Mesopotamia. <laughs> uh, and that's where the first code was. And actually it was a performance-based code where buildings were falling down and the king of Mesopotamia came out with a building code that said if a building fell down, that the builder had to lose uh, value worth that building. And if it killed a person in the building, well, then someone in that family, the builder's family would have to die as well. And that was the first performance code. Luckily, we don't have code Terrible. like that today. <laughs> yes. Code. The Hammurabi's, that was the first <laughs> building code, right? There. And then the next building code came around, which really was with the London Fire. And we figured out, you know, how to make buildings and build communities closely together and limit the risk of fire. But everything was a reaction to, to each other of when there was a fire, we figured out how to build things that were, were you know, don't build your chimneys out of wood. Okay, it was ah. a reaction. Okay. And when buildings start to fall down, when they get bigger, we figured out how to make them not fall down. So it was always a reaction, not looking forward to the next 20, 30 years of what could be a problem. It was, we've had a problem for the past 20 years or 10 years. How do we fix that problem today? but not look into the future. And I think now we're seeing a shift in that mentality in our municipalities, at least, as they look at the sobering news about climate change and resiliency efforts. And more and more of our communities are trying to make these compacts for net zero or carbon neutral by a certain decade. Um, we do know that if things are not addressed within this decade, then it will be even more difficult to achieve any sort of mitigation to the climate change that we're seeing now. Are you seeing a call for net zero or carbon neutral buildings in your work? And can you define, can you define what those terms yeah. mean, please? Well, what we are finding is that we have clients that are definitely concerned and are looking at how do they get their buildings and campuses, get reduce the actual energy and carbon being consumed on their in their buildings and campuses. They are concerned about the buildings they're building today, the new construction, and looking at constructing to, you know, high performance buildings such as Passive House or other, you know, just even without even being branded as a as a actual certification, just a high performance building enclosure mechanical systems. 
and looking at what is the embodied carbon in their existing buildings or what's the embodied carbon in the new buildings that are going to be built because if we don't tackle the problem of the building materials that we are um, building with and making smart selections with the building materials, the energy efficiency is kind of mute. And that is, if we're looking at two different types of insulations, one type of insulation might have two or three or four times the amount of embodied carbon than the other. So we need to be smart about what types of materials we're selecting during the renovation or new construction to ensure that the building itself is not being, not intensifying the carbon problem. And also look at the existing building and what can be retained because it already has the carbon inside of it through the previous construction. And that is an important aspect of retaining existing buildings. Ken, do you want to add on to that? Sure. I think it's, you didn't directly ask about uh, existing buildings and historic buildings. So I, we should probably get back to that. But I, I do want to address, you know, the question about net zero and, and uh, carbon neutral. What do they mean? Uh, where are we seeing this? So there's all kinds of different definitions for net zero. Basically, it means that on an annual basis, the site produces as much energy as it uses. And some people like to look at that on a source level, meaning, well, if we back it all the way up to the energy needed at the power plant, which is three times the energy that you actually get on site uh, by the time it gets delivered to the meter, or do we look at just the property line? So there are subtleties to the way that can be defined, but at the end of the day, it's really about having a super low energy building and having buildings that whether it's directly on site or through some other relationship can be a part of the generation of energy as well. The, the carbon, I think that gets more confusing. It's often this is about carbon being shorthand for carbon dioxide or carbon dioxide equivalent, meaning the greenhouse gas or global warming potential. R right away, I'm getting a little confused myself. This is something we need to think about in terms of embodied carbon. It's really, what is the, a simple way to think about it, what is the impact that's represented by materials? And if we go ahead and make a bunch of steel, we have to mine the ore, we have to refine the ore, we have to form it into shapes, transport it probably through heavy trucking across the country. These are all steps that use an enormous amount of energy and have an enormous impact. So if we are going to build a new building out of steel, we're gonna face all of those impacts in addition to the operational impact of the energy that's needed to heat and cool and light the building as well as the, the other systems and, and energy uses within the building. That's, that's a bit about what the definitions are. I'm not sure if that's, that's helpful, but that's kind of the way I think about it. I will say we are certainly hearing a lot of some municipalities, some of our clients, institutions, I think they're wondering if it's possible. They know they should and maybe feel a little bit of an obligation to try it, but haven't yet been convinced that it is possible. We think it is. And I, I think the, the biggest barrier to achieving a, a zero emissions building or carbon neutral building is that we may have to do something different. And that's really change is the hardest thing, but it's 
it's not that we don't have the technology, it's not that we don't have the resources, it's more that we have to do something different. Because if we want different results, we need to do something different. And if we want buildings to perform different, they will have to be different. And I know that oftentimes our historic structures might be under partial purview of the historic commission, um, or at least consultation of a historic commission. If you're looking at the building envelope and changes to that, there are challenges posed by trying to satisfy both the energy efficiency and the historic nature of the building itself. Have you run into any issues like that? Of course. Yeah, very significantly so. And I, I think, you know, it's, this is good to keep in mind. You know, we've already touched on this, but uh, the historic building has a leg up because it's already built, right? Heard it said that the, the greenest building is the building we don't build. And, you know, of course, the next build is, greenest building is one that's already built because that only has to mitigate its operational impacts. But the third order greenest building and one that has to try pretty hard is building new because you have to mitigate both the operational and the construction and land consumption impacts. So historic buildings, existing buildings, they have a leg up because they're already built. And can we mitigate, the question is, can we mitigate their operational impact? Uh, I don't consider myself an expert, but I, I did actually, one of my degrees was in performance in the context of historic preservation. So I, I'm aware of some of the issues and the restrictions, the limits, but I think there's also a whole lot of misconceptions that are preventing us from addressing their performance of buildings. So I think there's, there's more performance to be gained than, than people realize with existing buildings, even historic buildings. Uh, you know, for example, people often think we can't safely insulate on the interior of a masonry building. That's not necessarily true. That is true in some cases, but it's it's more, the answer is more of a, it depends kind of question than no, we absolutely can't do this. And Wes, I don't know if you have some other examples like exposed masonry, whether that's authentic or not. Oh yeah, over in Europe, you wouldn't have that. You'd only have that when the building's being renovated because they're gonna re-plaster, re-render the outside of the building because uh, masonry wouldn't be exposed. It's not supposed to be. But uh, when it comes to the existing building, there's other aspects of it. So Ken touched on, well, we both kind of touched on the fact that there's the embodied carbon and there's the embodied energy within the building. But another topic that actually I, I spoke with some of my students on about two weeks ago was that, you know, with existing buildings that are in our towns, there's also the embodied community. And also a key thing for, for me as well is vernacular design that if we have historical buildings that are built for the location, that is very important because a lot of buildings today are built with anywhere architecture versus the vernacular design that makes, say, for top of Massachusetts, you know, New England and Massachusetts, Massachusetts, if you have the older historical buildings that are vernacular design, that's something that's hard to come by. And that's another type of embodied energy. These are, th you know, buildings that, Yes, it does take some creativity and some thought process of how to make them perform, but they've already performed for a long time and they've performed and provided service and they could still continue to provide service. And the solutions to get them to being a higher performance building might not be as difficult 
as you know some people might think it just might it won't wouldn't be the same as a you know a, a typical modern day construction box that's anywhere architecture can you define vernacular design for us please yes vernacular design is a term used um, especially used it back over in ireland and some of the especially back in ireland vernacular design is an architecture you know type of architecture that is built in a locality so let's say for example if you were to look at over in ireland you have roofs that have a you know, 30 to 45 degree slope they are designed to shed water with overhangs so that the it's a lot of rain in the country so the roofs are designed to take that rain and shed it off the building and if you you know there's different types of techniques that were that came apart came to being part of the building design over hundreds of years of evolution of building construction and people get attached to that building design because that makes that building design you know an irish building design but if you go down to the mediterranean italy they'll build the buildings different because buildings adapted and evolved for that climate and that location and if when you come to new england we build buildings different here than they would in a different part of the world we figured out over many centuries how to build buildings naturally for our climate and for our community and that is what's called that's the vernacular design for the building for the area now in the past 100 150 years since the industrial revolution we've been able to just pump energy into buildings and build buildings any way we want you know glass metal boxes and you know orientate them any direction we want and we moved away from a vernacular design and that's where if we have buildings that are that traditional design that make you know say for example for a house well in new england would be a salt box um, an old salt box colonial you know they were designed for the northeastern winds that's why one roof pitch is actually lowered down to one story is to push that northeastern wind up over the actual roof and have less of an effect on the actual building when it came to the winter winds that's a vernacular design that adapted to the climate and conditions and you know became a design feature that people grown to know and love about a new england home now they don't necessarily orientate the houses that direction it's something that is embodied within the actual building that we don't get anymore if we destroy the building. So part of building new is also looking at your siting and for your energy efficiency and looking at your orientation. Even though we might be renovating historic buildings and they might be greener because they're already built, are there any advantages to building new? Yes, I mean, it depends on what building we're looking at. I mean, look, if you take a building, we can't just have a blanket statement that every building that's existing is better than a new building. Some buildings are going to have a lot of issues with them. And sometimes the amount of issues that are related to a building make it to a breaking point that investing money in the building no longer makes sense. Yeah. Unless it's like <laughs> a national treasure. <laughs> but I, and, I think we have to be honest that some buildings are more a lesson than an example. A lesson for failure? Well, yeah, you know, we should learn from these buildings, not uh, not necessarily emulate them. Some buildings just are that way. And, and we have, so we need some humility in looking at what we have built in the past. So you, do you want to expand so others know about that, Ken? What do you mean by humility? Sure. You know, sometimes we just have to acknowledge that, um, boy, that 
it seems like, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, it seemed like a good idea at the time to import California architecture and have those aluminum frames with glass infill. But we need to have the humility to uh, acknowledge that that maybe wasn't the best idea and we should probably let that go and move forward with something different. And this is really the part of evolution. When when people say we don't build them like we used to, they're talking about the buildings that are still here because they've demonstrated some sort of fitness to their situation. And so what we see are the examples that were built appropriately for their for their resource, available resources and climate and locality. We don't see the many lessons learned along the way because those those buildings are long since gone. So there's there's that level of, of humility when we look at buildings that were built in the past and at which ones do we want to take with us into the future and how far into the future. So we see the ones that are built at their time that were built way past code standards. If we were to look at a modern day equivalent, they weren't just built to code back in the 1700s, if they're still here today. They were built to a really high standard back then, if they still survived. Yeah, I think I'm living in an example of one that um, <laughs> probably is more of a lesson than an example. Um, I've found, uh, I have a hundred year old home and I've found many really, um, really creative things that uh, kind of defy uh, physics and gravity, but uh, we're doing what we can to hold it together and keep it going for a while longer. You were asking about new buildings. What what were you asking? So we had talked a little bit about how the greenest building is a building that already exists, but is there a case to be made for building new? Um, is there yes. an advantage from an energy efficiency? Yeah, I would just correct and say the greenest building is one that we don't build at all. Um, greener would be one that exists. Uh, but sometimes, yes, building new. Uh, if the program and the project is to build a new building, we have the materials technologies available to us today that it's really not much of a leap to make a building that is a zero emissions building. We can make buildings today for zero to no incremental cost that. Um, that are gonna actually help us out on the need to reduce our greenhouse gases and global warming potential over the next decades. So and get back to what I was saying there too, that at sometimes you do have a building which is 100, 200 years old, and the costs for maintaining or upgrading it outweighs the cost for building new. And sometimes that's where the decision is made to demo and replace unless it is a national heritage building or something really significant that you want to invest the money in. And there is a, a facility that you know of that I did an assessment of last year that it did require, does require a lot of work. And that's where decisions would need to be made of whether, whether that facility maintains and renovates or finds a way to replace the building because Sometimes that cost is so high, is it better to go into a new building? And that's part of that performance conditions assessment, figuring out what is the cost of replacements versus the cost of building new. There are cases, that's why it'd be an individual, not a blanket statement, but an individual case-by-case -case, you know, assessment. And I, I think it's, I always want to qualify that. And maybe this is because I'm you know, quite uh, fond of historic buildings um, that, 
when we make the comparison, does it cost less to build new? Um, do we also get the same result? Because we can look back in periods of history, civic buildings um, are beautiful and the resources and, and care that was put into civic buildings and the kind of construction quality. I, where I sit, I can look up the hill at, at an old um, uh, 1909 school building and it has nice brickwork, great detailing and woodwork. It was not a particularly fancy building of its time, but the Pope can't afford to build that quality today. So we do have to recognize maybe it, it feels like it's less expensive to build new, but we may not be looking at a parity in terms of quality between existing buildings and, and what we would call an acceptable building today. In terms of the historic buildings, we had touched upon the fact that you can indeed make them more energy efficient, but in terms of the cost, it might be a little bit more than what a municipality can afford. But if you plan properly, can energy efficiency goals be achieved with minimal impact to that overall budget for the project? Is it going to be always difficult to make a building more energy efficient in terms of cost, or can you, if you plan properly, well, energy efficiency within that budget? With an existing, right? Yeah. With an existing building, you have the advantage of cash flow. You're not setting out a large amount of cash on day one. If you have a good plan over the next 5, 10, 15 years of items that need to be upgraded, and what are you going to upgrade to to improve the performance, you could budget the cash flow accordingly to shift that building into a better roofing system, a better you know, deep energy retrofit for the enclosure over the next five years, and then tackle the mechanical systems. You could shift it into a higher performance over a five-year plan or a 10-year plan. Whereas if you have a new construction, you have to demo the existing building and build new, and you need that cash today, which would cost more, not too sure. But you do have the advantage of the cash flow if you were to renovate an existing building over time as the capital improvements are required. I will admit that I have to concede that it's, it's not always easy to fix an existing building. Um, I have a, you know, I mentioned I have a hundred plus year old home and a couple years ago, a friend and I, we put in a ducted heat pump system. I learned a really good lesson. I learned that next time I'm going to put in the ductwork first and then build the house uh, because putting ductwork in an existing building is really a bear. Uh, it's quite a chore. So it's it's not always easy uh, to do what needs to be done and to to move a building to to better performance. And there's also that you know the the first do no harm. What we do know about an existing building is that it's working. We may not know why, but so we have to be very careful and proceed with caution that we don't do something that causes it to not work and causes a problem where there wasn't a problem before. I think in general, we have the knowledge in our field to be able to proceed appropriately and do things that are safe to mitigate risks and to put buildings in a better position relative to their moisture risks and their comfort risks and their energy performance. But it's, it's gonna be easy, it takes work, it takes a lot of thinking and probably a lot of crawling around in tight spaces, I'm afraid to say. 
I just wanted to mention that I, I really appreciated what has been said about uh, civic buildings and the cultural importance and how valuable historic buildings are. But I also want to make sure that our listeners understand that today we're talking about uh, building performance and energy efficiency only, and, and those are not the only factors in a decision of whether to keep a historic building or to build new there's a huge factor of functionality in public library buildings that historic buildings really struggle to meet. And so we'll be addressing that in a future episode. Great. Thank you, Lauren. So in terms of your commissioning work, I don't know if many of our listeners know what commissioning actually is and what the advantages of having it done are and what the different levels may be. In our commissioning started with boats actually many long long time ago you know you don't want to send a boat out into the ocean to fear off storms and mighty waves unless you know that all the components work right for fear that it sinks so ships would be commissioned and tested and all the components and the whole system together would work before it would take on passengers and take out to the seas and then airplanes end up being commissioned as well but when there's a failure in a boat or an airplane, it's pretty significant. When they bring on commissioning into buildings, buildings you know, fail, but usually buildings fail quietly. In the background, there's something wrong with the building, mechanical systems or the enclosure, and a lot of people inside the building don't even realize it. So what is commissioning? Um, well, it's looking at, looking at the actual building systems, the enclosure, you know, the walls, windows, roof, and it's also looking at you know, mechanical systems like the heating, the cooling, dehumidification, ventilation systems, uh, looking at their individual parts. So if you were to take a ventilation system, looking at individual parts of the fans, the motors, the actual you know, dampers that adjust the amount of air come out to your spaces, then looking at the entire system itself as an air handling system, a ventilation system, to see how does all those, some of those parts work together to condition the air for your location space, and then to ensure that the entire system works as a building. The actual commissioning should start pre-design. As we talked earlier on um, in this you know, discussion, we want to start at the base of design, start pre-design, and to really do commissioning, you want to ensure that the owner sets out their goals and the commissioning agent should be there to help the owner um, figure out what are the goals for this project and then ensure that the goals are put are incorporated within the actual design documents and that's you know the drawings and specifications that the architects and engineers will develop over the design period and the commissioning agent will you know look and review holistically the mechanical electrical plumbing architectural drawings and trying to be that bridge to make sure that yes those goals are going to be achieved with the current design and when the construction starts being that quality control of the actual components going in during the construction and testing through mock-ups inspections and then functional testing the components and the systems to work effectively and then into operations. If it's all done from basis design through design and construction and operations, that's quality assurance. If commissioning though, 
say, for example, not to pick on it, but lead commissioning, that is stripped down commissioning. And that's where you're really kind of getting a little bit of design review and some testing at the end. And that's kind of more on the lines of quality control. And with that, it's, you know, did you, did, can you say it better than I do? <laughs> well, there's quality control commissioning. When quality control asks, did you get what you asked for? And then quality assurance asks, do we ask for the right thing? So it's, it's important. It doesn't do you much good to get what you asked for if you didn't ask for what you need. So it, that's the importance of having the commissioning be uh, quality assurance commissioning, but also integrated throughout the design process and the pre-design even to help the, the owner define the goals. That's quality assurance. And there are different levels that are implemented. And obviously, somebody that's, as Wes described, is somebody who's going to be looking at the designs for the mechanical and electrical and architectural systems. This has to be a, a person or an organization that understands buildings very well. But they, what they do, though, is they, they represent the owner because they, you know, the, the poor owner, uh, in the case of a library, let's say, they have enough to do just to try to keep that library going. They don't, we can't expect them to also be an expert in building systems. Maybe they are, and that's great. But if not, uh, how would a library trustee know whether the design is meeting their goals or not? So they, it would be useful for the, for the library to have an advocate on their side. And it's important that the, the commissioning, you're looking at what kind of, to what depth does the commissioning come into a project? If you're doing the quality assurance, it starts from basic design all the way to the end to operations. Quality control is, you know, design and then a little bit of design and a little bit of testing sprinkled in. But as Ken mentioned, there's also is, are you just doing some mechanical commissioning or is it mechanical and the enclosure and how does the building actually perform together as one system? There are a lot of commissioning agents that will only look at some of the mechanical equipment and will just test to make sure you got what you paid for, but they're not looking at how does that mechanical equipment interact with the enclosure and the fabric of the building. So if there's a humidity issue, well, then it must be mechanical equipment's fault, whereas it might be the enclosure's fault. So being able to look from a commissioning agent's point of view, having someone or a team that looks at both the enclosure systems and the mechanical systems together in design, pre-design, design, and then construction to ensure that the systems will work together to reduce risk for the owner is important. That's, that's risk of not meeting any of their goals or requirements. Yes. And that is... So you've talked about the commissioning process as it relates to new construction, but there's also retro commissioning and there's continuous commissioning and recommissioning. Can you talk about those and how they might relate to a building? Yeah, so retro commissioning, it would be for a building that has never had commissioning done before. So picture any of the existing libraries that you have that could be 5, 10, 50 years old and they've had different components over the years replaced. With retro commissioning, you would attempt to determine through design documents or details on the existing systems, how should those systems operate based on the original design intent? And then test the equipment to figure out how they actually do function. 
or do they even function? There's times where you figure out that the fans don't operate on some parts of the system, or maybe there's actuators, if parts of the hydro, you know, heating system that don't actually work. So that's why there's comfort problems or freezing problems in parts of the building. And so you do tests on the components to figure out what components don't work and why the overall system has issues. But you don't just stop there because that was designed five years ago or 15 or 20 years ago. What if that design from back then does not meet the needs today? Okay, codes might have, would have changed, but what if that part of the library was for storage of books, but now it's been repurposed for a children's you know, play area or a different purpose? Maybe those systems do not function properly or adequately for what the new purpose is or what the intended purpose is for that location. So it's developing um, simple fixes or little capital plans or major capital plans for the library uh, to better get the systems to serve current needs for the building with the existing systems or upgrades that's required to make it serve the, the current needs. Does that make sense? Yes, it definitely does. In terms of our buildings and many of the libraries that we work with, it is rare to find an HVAC system that functions properly. And in our newer buildings, it's very difficult for our library directors and whatever type of facility staff that they have, which could be very minimal to none at all, to try to figure out these building maintenance systems and make sure that everything's functioning properly. So we're wondering, do simple systems exist within the parameters of energy efficiency or does that have to be mutually exclusive, a simple system or energy efficient system? Doesn't have to be exclusive. There are systems out there that are simpler and there are systems out there that are more complex. And there are systems out there that start off simple, but then get layered on with more complexities than what need to be. Um, I've been into buildings where they would have had a simple boiler plant for heating, where maybe say four or five boilers for a building. And they added in a control system to control the boilers together as a team. And then a secondary control added onto the primary control. And then a third controls controlling the second control that was controlling the first control. And it even gets confusing trying to talk about it. <laughs> and then they were wondering why the system doesn't work and nobody knows what to do. And when I was doing, taking a look at the building with them, I brought out some screwdrivers and wrenches and just disconnected two of the control systems and left it as one. And I said, well, get your HVAC contractor back to explain why those are there but just run it with this one for now because it was, it, was layer, it was adding in too many layers of complexity of controls. So you could have simple systems with relatively simple controls that could get you to a higher performance. And you could go to a really complex system that should be really efficient, but maybe cannot be understood even by the people who install them sometimes because they're interacting with many other systems that that person did not install. So you have air handling units, which are moving air around the building and you have heating and cooling and there's a lot of different systems and there are, there are ways of doing it more simple. What are uh, questions that our directors and trustees and other stakeholders should be asking in terms of 
getting a system that works. From the mechanical point of view, one of the things that Ken and myself push for is ask the design team to separate the ventilation from the heating, cooling, and dehumidification system. And what that means is that too many times the design will use a large air handling unit system to try to do it all. And that's where it'll try to bring outdoor air for fresh air for breathing inside of a space and exhausting air. And it will also be the system that's going to try to condition the space, you know, heat it and cool it and dehumidify the space. And it's moving a lot of air and it's got a lot of VAV boxes that are all these controls connected to each other. Whereas you if you could variable ask, air volume? Variable air volume. And then if we could try to separate that and just have a simple energy recovery ventilator, which is a ventilation system that will bring outdoor air into your building and provide fresh air, exhaust air out of places you want to exhaust it, but it'll, it'll transfer the energy between like heating, uh, transfer the heat or cool if you're in the air conditioning mode between the two streams of air, but not the air between them. So you don't get a, uh, you're not losing on energy or um, for the ventilation then you're allowed you're able to ventilate your space to what you need you know you should be ventilating it for but then you have a separate system that's providing the heating and cooling and dehumidification just for what's needed in those spaces and it's a simpler simpler concept and more effective Wes you said something there you, know, you said a lot of things I'll, uh, <laughs> be honest <laughs> I mean a key thing there a key takeaway is yes a, a the ventilation system it it should be separate from the heating and cooling system. You also said that it's a heating, cooling, and dehumidification system. And that's, mm -hmm. that's a, I think it's a really important thing for people to grab onto as we, as our buildings evolve forward and we do better and better at, at making them more energy efficient. Well, you know, the, the cooling load is starting to be about balanced with the heating load. And also, we see that there's a dehumidification load that needs to be addressed um, because the, if we do a good job, we're not going to have that air conditioner running to cool things and, and taking out moisture as it's cooling because we're already cool. But we still need to dehumidify, especially if we're going to have let people in buildings because people, they cause all kinds of problems. So that's an important thing to, to make sure that dehumidification is part of it. I want to say one other thing for for the stakeholders of public library projects is, is they should ask their designers, what can we do with the building enclosure, the building overall, to reduce the loads? You were asking before about you know, these systems that are really complicated and people seems that we can't get systems to work or systems that are that people can operate well what we need to do is yes make systems simpler but also make us less reliant on systems which in other words we need to reduce the load that we're asking these mechanical systems to carry so if we can do that with our with our building enclosure and our the way the space is arranged the kind of lighting and computer equipment we put in the building so that we don't need a huge mechanical system to handle the heating and cooling needs. It could be a very small and very simple system that would be easier to operate. Oh, and by the way, if it gets small, it'll probably be familiar because it'll be a very similar to a residential kind of system. So that goes back to the planning process as you were speaking about previously, Wes. 
and how when you use your capital plan correctly, right. then you can go ahead and make sure that these different upgrades are done in advance of having to deal with your larger mechanical systems. That's right. I was just going to ask uh, a while ago in the discussion, you mentioned the concept of deep energy retrofit and we didn't really get into that. And I think that's something that our listeners would be really interested in because many of them are in historic or, or otherwise uh, existing buildings and they, there's not an, a major renovation in their future. But if there are steps that they can take to improve the uh, efficiency of the current buildings, I think they'd like to hear about that. And I believe there are t there's deep energy retrofit and there's partial deep energy retrofit. Is that correct? Which that's is, a, a, yeah, that's a way of saying it's a going deep with maybe a few components, which is not a bad idea of staging a, a deep energy retrofit. Um, I'd love to talk about deep energy retrofits. So is that is that what you're asking? That is exactly what I'm asking. <laughs> clear your schedule. Are you, are you sure you want? That's right. Clear your schedule. You sure you want to open those floodgates? Uh, I'm very, very curious <laughs> about what that really means and how that works. Well, a a deep energy retrofit is. I don't know if I can comment on all three of those words because it's it's not just about energy, right? Because it's about the energy, the durability, the comfort the operability, but essentially what it means is retrofitting the building enclosure and the building mechanical systems to make it a very low energy, high performance building. So what does that mean? Well, it depends on what we're starting with uh, because there's different strategies that would be used in different kinds of buildings. Probably the, the easiest place to start would be a typical wood framed building. And let's say it, typical wood frame building, we'll call it a 200 year building. But do you know we put 25 and 50 year cladding on, on these buildings? So at some point, that cladding is going to be need to be replaced, the, the clapboards or the shingles. And that is a least cost, great opportunity to vastly improve the performance of the walls. So a deep energy retrofit, and there have been some books about it. Uh, Mass Save produced a nice guide a couple years back a deep energy retrofit on a wood frame house would involve letting the, the people still live there and use the building, but you would essentially gut it from the outside and wrap the building in first air control and water control. So you help the building to be airtight and have a very robust water control layer so that you don't have leaks into the building. You can then add insulation. This is the best time to do it. And that will help and it will actually done right can actually improve the durability of the building. And we would proceed around the building like so, the, the windows, um, you know, windows, uh, I'm actually looking at some windows right now that are probably about 100 years old, but we're probably not intended to last that long. So windows are a wonderful opportunity to reduce the energy use of the building because a, a whole lot of energy goes through windows. So if a window is being replaced, or even if it is going to be left in place and a window put over the window, so that I know that, that sounds a little weird, but we could address the windows of all kinds of different strategies, but essentially we would significantly reduce the energy flows through the building enclosure. And then when we significantly reduce the energy flows through the building enclosure, well, then we may wanna have a different kind of mechanical system, not just because 
the system we have is now oversized, but probably it's also inappropriate for the kind of building that we now have. Uh, we will, for one, uh, probably want to pay more attention to cooling loads. Heating load may not be as significant. Dehumidification will be an issue. And also ventilation will be something that we want to take care of. And this is not that we can't open windows to get ventilation. Of course we can. But in the winter, that certainly doesn't make us comfortable. And if we do so in the dog days of summer where it's really hot and humid out, opening the windows can actually present some real risks of damage and health problems inside our building. So ventilation becomes a, becomes a system that we need to pay attention to in a, a deep energy retrofit building. So at the end of it, a deep energy retrofit gets us a, a low energy, high performance building. And we have to acknowledge and recognize along the way that it's, it's a very different kind of building than we started with. But I would say that the good part is it's the building that is on that familiar site the building can retain details that we can't afford to build today if we were building new. People can continue use of the building, which is important. And at the end of the day, we are left with something that is positioned. It leapfrogs the current building standard. We can leapfrog an existing building to well ahead of current standards and give it, refresh it for another 50, 100 years. Is there any other essential information that our stakeholders in public library projects need to know before they embark on a project upgrade or a larger building project for energy efficiency? Let's see, further, they, well, the key thing is going to be planning, set out their goals before they actually undertake the actual design. Do an assessment of what you have there at the moment. What are the issues that you have with the building? What can you address now with your project? Yeah, what would be a good idea? Just, I'm just kind of recapping. Um, what would be a good uh, thing to do as well is set out the actual financial goals with a capital plan and have it be a performance-based you know, facility condition assessment with a capital plan. So you're not replacing in kind. And that's for existing building. And for a new building, what are the goals for the construction, uh, for the end product? Uh, we know it's going to be a library, but what are the... What is, what's the energy efficiency goals? But don't don't just dwell on the energy efficiency. Um, what are the indoor air quality, the durability, the maintenance type of goals that you're going to set forward for the project? I know you mentioned about the issues with controls and operations, because what we find is that you know setting our sights on the actual um, other items, such as I would just mention the um, durability and the operations and maintenance and stuff like that, they will drag along the actual energy performance of a project. Now, if we focus just on energy efficiency alone, we miss out on a lot of the other performance factors, which are more important usually to building owners. So set out the performance goals and then ensure that they are encapsulated within the actual design and ensure that there's a quality assurance process throughout the design and construction process that can ensure that expectations are met and exceeded. Do you have anything to add to that, Ken? Sure. I think with, with all buildings, you know, the, the real key is for the stakeholders and the organization community to get together and understand what are the goals and be ambitious, I would say. Be ambitious and start early because if we plan and set the goals early, it makes the goals less 
less daunting, right? As ambitious as it seems, if we just go ahead and get started on it, we can get there. Thank you so much for your time and for your expertise. This has been great. Thank you so much. Now a word from Gideon Nachman from Communities Responding to Extreme Weather, known as CREW. They work with the Massachusetts Library System on community response to climate change. Thank you. Uh, so I am Gideon Nachman. I'm from Communities Responding to Extreme Weather, CREW, uh, and I'm here to talk a little bit today about our partnership with Mass Libraries and also our partnerships specifically around climate resilience hubs. Uh, so first to give a tiny bit of background about CREW, uh, we do stand for Communities Responding to Extreme Weather, and we are an environmental organization um, that is a sister program of 350 Mass and DevastEd, and we're part of a Better Future project. Uh, but while those two organizations focus mostly on the either legislative or institutional fight against climate change, we really focus on the response side. Uh, we're not about mitigation, we're more about adaptation. Uh, we're not a political organization, we're not a fundraising organization, we're an organization that's dedicated to building an on-the-ground equitable communal climate response, and we do that by uh, working sort of block by block, city by city, step by step to make that happen. Um, and we have sort of three main parts of our program. The first are crew teams, which are local teams that come together to do events in the community that are climate mitigation events. And then we also have Climate Prep Week, which is the last week of September. Uh, last year, we had 134 events all across the state. Um, and I just want to shout out again, the libraries, 90 of those events were events at libraries. And those were held at 80 distinct libraries across Massachusetts. So really, uh, bravo again to the libraries. And I would be remiss here if I did not thank Michelle Eberly and Madeline Charney, uh, who I work with uh, in the libraries who are really great people and um, have helped me a lot. So thank you to those partners. Um, and then the last thing is the Climate Resilience Hub Program. And that's really what I wanna talk about today. Um, we have, as of April 14th, we have uh, 14 resilience hubs uh, across the state that are up and running and ready to go and have signed our MOU and 13 of those are libraries. Uh, and there are libraries all across uh, the state from Cape Cod to the Berkshires, uh, in between sort of Metro West area, uh, South Shore, North Shore. Um, so really, like, again, we're trying to get statewide coverage. And so someone might ask, okay, well, what is a resilience hub? Uh, and for us, the idea of a resilience hub is that you have community anchor institutions uh, that we know from people we've talked to, librarians, pastors, rabbis, uh, community center, teachers, et cetera, who want to do something about climate change but don't yet now have the time, effort, or resources to. Uh, and you have citizens in those communities who need uh, and want to also do something about climate change but don't know where to go. Uh, so instead of sort of creating a new program or trying to have this mismatch, we decided that uh, it would be great if the community anchor institutions like libraries and houses of worship and community centers could become climate resilience hubs uh, and the people who already use their programs uh, could then have climate resilience as a part of uh, the resources on offer. Um, and so it might look different for each one, but we've had uh, libraries host green teams and have talks and uh, in some cases provide 
uh, cooling when it's too hot out for people who are at risk of heat stroke and that sort of thing. And anyway, so there are three uh, main uh, requirements to be a resilience hub. Uh, the first is that you host one climate resilience event that is open to all members of your community a year, uh, at least one, but you have to host one. Uh, the second is to provide emergency preparedness uh, informational materials that uh, we at Crew make and provide free of charge uh, to your uh, institution. And those are things like flyers and pamphlets about what to do during an extreme weather event, a heat wave, flooding, extreme cold, um, how to prepare a go bag for your family, all of that. So we provide those to you. You just have to make them publicly and openly accessible. And then to put a little, uh, the third is to put a decal in your window that lets you know you're a crew certified climate resilience hub. And then from there, you know, we work on sort of meeting the best ways in which you can, your library um, might have certain capabilities that others might not. Um, and so that's what we do. Um, and the reason why I'm excited to work with libraries and librarians in particular is that I really, on a whole, on a larger basis, have not met a group of people yet who care more passionately about their work and take their uh, ethos of being a free, accessible, open, community-centered um, institution to heart. <laughs> Every librarian I've met has only been eager and excited to do more and wants to do more, and it's just been very invigorating to work with them. Um, sort of, I know lots of librarians have more on their plate than they can handle uh, as it is, and so sort of this idea is to give uh, the Climate Resilience Program to make it very easy and make, essentially have crew do a lot of the back-end work, uh, and then for you sort of just to do a little bit of a front-end work. Uh, and just, yeah, I think it's on everyone's minds now. Uh, so I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that, you know, COVID-19, I think, has exposed and highlighted a lot of the iniquities that have always existed that librarians, I think, have known firsthand for a long time. Uh, a lot of the iniquities around class and race and gender and age and ability status. And COVID-19 has really highlighted how stark some of those differences are and how unfairly they're distributed um, and how many gaps exist at local, uh, state, and federal emergency response. Uh, and again, for librarians, this might not have been news. It might have just been sad confirmation of what they already knew. Um, but for the climate catastrophe that's coming and in some ways already here, I think sadly, um, unless we really start to prepare, it's gonna hit disproportionately along those same uh, inequities and it's gonna hit those same communities and those are the same communities librarians and other people serve. So uh, that's why we do this work. That's why um, we feel it's important. We feel that emergency preparedness now more than ever has been highlighted as a necessary part of what it means to be a functioning society. Um, and yeah, that is what, what, what CREW is all about and why we're excited to work with libraries and uh, how thankful and grateful we are for the mass libraries uh, and librarians that have been our partners so far. Uh, and so if anyone wants to get in touch with me or learn more about this program, they can go to climatecrew.org, that's our website, or email me at gideon at climatecrew.org, that is G-I-D-E-O-N at climatecrew.org. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our first episode in our series on sustainability. In our next episode, join us as we delve into designing sustainable buildings from the architectural firm perspective, as we talk all things energy efficient with Feingold Alexander Architects.